Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Alchemist podcast, an extension of the blog Alchemist in the Making. I'm your special host today, I'm Gina He, a millennial who also finds interest in architecture's relationship with anything and everything. In this special collaborative series titled, Is It What You Wanted? We are interested in having conversations on whereabouts of people's journeys in and around architecture. Today, we are welcomed by a special guest, Graham Hall, who I met during my time in RMIT. And we are hoping to explore several topics, which I think I will pass on the mic to Graham for him to introduce himself and talk a little bit about the topic. Hi, everyone. My name is Graham. Um, thank you, Gina, for inviting me to be on a podcast. I've never been on a podcast before, so this is brand new territory for me. Uh, I am an architect by trade. I am a florist by nature, I guess you can say that. I am a registered architect in Victoria, and I'm also the founder and principal behind Tweet Twigs, which is a local multidisciplinary florist or botanical artist, you can call it that. And I produce work that challenges the traditional forms of floristry into very unexpected and dramatic sculptural beings. So um, I graduated from RMIT master's program in 2016. And from then on, I've worked in a number of practices doing mainly education work. But having the architectural background, is, it has actually helped me to interrogate flowers that work in an architectural space. So it has pretty much informed itself into an art form and create an ongoing conversation that collaborates between architecture and floristry into something that is a bit more editorial. So that's what my practice in floristry currently is. And yeah, so that's basically me in a nutshell. I'm sure we'll discover a little bit more about myself throughout this podcast that I probably did not think that I was going to share, but <laughs> that's, that's where we are at this point. Yeah. So shall we wipe back a little bit of the time, like before architecture? Sure. So what actually gets you into architecture in the first place? So I guess growing up, I never thought I was going to be an architect or I never even knew that architecture was one of my options. Mm. I did pre-university education in Singapore before moving to Melbourne to do my um, university degree. So growing up, we had very traditional subjects like art, music and your science subjects. So I guess in that traditional kind of structure, I actually thought I was going into chemical engineering. So the reason only because... Out of all my subjects, I did well in chemistry. And at that point, I guess that was, I guess, kind of how you chose what your career was going to be. You just figured out what you did best and let your natural, I guess, dexterity in the subjects kind of lead forward to your decisions. And yeah, so I think what I wanted to do when I was um, 16 or 17 was, I've always been interested in art. I never understood it but I I enjoyed it and there was something that I kind of wanted to push out of that traditional trajectory of what the science careers were, were going to be oh. so I think one of the things I wanted to do was taking a degree in art curatorship my mom thought it was just a bad idea because who knows um what that kind of financial stress that would bring to me when I grew up which I at that point I didn't understand but I kind of understand where, what she's talking about now so I think she wanted me to focus on something that was a little bit more tangible understand or hone in that so-called appreciation for art as well so I kind of fell into architecture because it fit that mold of structure as well as design and at the end of my pre-university career in architecture I just found out that I understood concepts very quickly and it was something that I picked up and kind of produce in working drawings. And because I did well at that point, I just went on to doing architecture in university because that seemed like the right path. And, you know, don't change the design of the wheel if the wheel still works. So that was kind of yeah. basically what that kind of led me doing bachelor's in architectural design and then following master's. And I guess that's where I met you. I think I met you in the master's program, I think. Mm. I think yeah. we, we did a design course together um, or like yes. a design module together. And I, I think that's kind of when we knew each other. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the studio was actually talking about like alternative thinking as well. Yeah. So yeah, what leads us into like different thoughts and explorations mm -hmm. and things. Yeah. Yeah. I think architecture is a very multidisciplinary. It's because I came from a very technical environment prior to university so moving into the bachelor's or the degree program was 
a complete shock to my system. I understand. Yeah. You kind of mentioned that chemistry engineering is your next step, but what actually shake you off from that mindset? I think what drew me into chemical engineering was because it was just something that was available at that point, and that was something that was traditionally seen as the right career to do. So I guess that was something that kind of led me down that path. Um, I think what changed me from chemical engineering was because I knew that I knew that this was the time that I needed to, if I was really interested in design, which I was, yeah. I had to make a change or I had to really decide what I wanted to do at that point. Because if I go down the path of engineering, if I do go back into design, it would it would definitely not be a an experience where I could just pick up design. I would have to go back into school and I would have to restart my career. Not saying that's a bad thing, but mm-hmm. I think at that point, it seemed like a very fundamental shift in what I was going to do in the future. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I would have done in chemical engineering because, you know, that reality or that time, the alternate timeline hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. But I'm actually glad I'm in design now. All I can say is that I think we all know that architecture school is... It's just not easy, let's just put it that way. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I think if I were to tell my I don't know, 19, 20-year-old self who was beginning architecture, uh-huh. I would just tell this young boy to say, just do it. Like, it's going to be tough, but there is really a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Definitely suit the context of where we are now, like heading towards the end of the tunnel in this pandemic time, right? Well, yes. I think, you know, currently we are following this via an online medium, you know, the best case, you know, we will be, we will be sitting together in the same room. But yeah. interestingly enough, architecture has not stopped, or at least the construction industry hasn't stopped in this pandemic, which is, uh-huh. I guess, very fascinating to me. If you look at F&B or even the hospitality industry, that was uh-huh. the first industry that was hit, and that was yeah. a very abrupt stop. Uh-huh. And the construction industry even though that we were hit by it it takes a much longer process to slow down and i think that was something that was um, interesting to watch from like a very back-end point of view because i was not directly involved with clients or anything but um for example where i was working on at the beginning of the the pandemic was in education projects and Uh at that point education projects we still needed to deliver schools to uh, Victorian students, there was no alternative. And we just had to uh-huh. keep going because these are the things that uh, was already planned for a year or two in advance. Yeah, And that is actually very remarkable to see that industry hasn't stopped, um, yeah. but it couldn't stop. And that's something that needed to be delivered at that point. So, yeah. yeah. As you said, like architecture is one of those career that or jobs that you basically planning for the future. It is literally planning for the future because the construction takes, it doesn't happen over two weeks, but it happens over a long period of time. Um, but yeah. yeah, you were saying yes. So doing the study, let's go back a little bit. Yeah. Like doing the study, of course, you experience some shocks mm. after getting into architecture yeah. study. Have you ever get a moment of thought that impacts you on making this decision a couple of years ago on planning your future <laughs> in architecture? I definitely think so. Architecture school was a little bit of a blur to me at this point. I remember yeah. it kind of taking over my life when I was a student. Yeah. I think there were many points in doing architecture school where I didn't know what was happening or mm-hmm. concepts were too foreign for me. Mm. And that was something that kind of which I think is fundamentally what design is, because I think design is so subjective, um, especially in a university context where buildability doesn't even come into play, or at least for design studio subjects. I think there were definitely moments and times where I did not know what was going on. It kind of questioned why I was doing this. Mm-hmm. But I think what really got me through was understanding that there was a goal to work towards. So a studio would have lasted, I think, what, 15 weeks? And I knew that there was a structure and I needed to get to this place at the end. I think that what that was what really pushed me through almost like an underlying current that brought me through uh, architecture school. Yeah. And having all these subjects, I guess, on the side, which was professional practice, um, I remember talking to a couple of my friends or studio mates at the time. Um, mm-hmm. 
I remember thinking that, oh, the working environment is going to be so different. It wouldn't be as volatile as what this is at this point. We won't be designing literally a factory in the sky because that is logically mm. not going to happen. And going to a, the real working environment, I think the first of all, you'll be getting paid for your work. Mm. I think the concept of getting paid for your work was very foreign at that point. But understanding that, yeah, like, you know, like we knew that there was something at the end. We knew mm. that... Um, we, we had to finish this and we had a timeline kind of set for us. I think for me mm. at that point, that was something that I pushed towards. I can't speak for, you know, my friends. I knew a couple of my friends, especially doing like my thesis, they were fundamentally quite shaken to the core because they were still not producing results. But I think mm. I went with this idea that I knew I, maybe I wasn't producing results, but by let's say week four, I needed to get this done and I needed to stick to an idea. I needed to make it work Mm. because I really enjoyed structure and I personally had a timeline. I knew that I was not going to do work on my last week of design studio. Like, I mean, it's a very, it's a very polarizing idea because I think this relates to no one else but architecture students, but you had to get your stuff printed or at least, you know, we had to print our stuff at that point uh, onto A0 sheets and, I knew that I was going to get myself printed. Whatever it was going to be, it was going to be on the paper and I was going to stick to it. And I had to commit. Yeah. I think that was something that, that really pushed me and set me going onto this, this motion. Like, I was not going to stop. I was just going to keep yeah. going. I didn't care what my tutors were going to say, which on hindsight sounds oh. like a very um, terrible idea. But I just had to produce something at the end of the day. And I was not going to start from beginning two weeks before yeah. the end of the semester. Yeah. And that was something I had, Yeah. I think like having the commitment and trusting in the things you do, it's the confidence that even the tutor or the panels are after as well. Yep. They wanted to see that you have the faith exactly. that you're putting the efforts on for like the past 15 weeks. I think definitely in design school or architecture school, um, because it was led by a, like a studio tutor, um, oh. that was a very um, one-sided or very narrow-minded idea of what your design was. But also knowing that, at least in RMIT, that your work was going to be judged on a panel of four yeah. or five different people providing different opinion to your work. I think what yeah. that was something that also helped me, knowing that if this particular person didn't understand my work, at least yeah. other people will understand it at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, I think it's a lot about confidence and research, thinking back. Mm-hmm. I think if you've got enough research, if you have confidence in your work and you are at the end of the day producing beautiful drawings in architecture school anyways. I think as artists, I think we're all artists. We all appreciate design to a certain extent. If you produce shitty work, you already know that you're producing shitty work. Yeah. So after you graduated, Mm -hmm. well, you finished your registration last year, you mentioned. So what was the decision that made you decide this is the moment to get ready and this is the moment I want to get registered. So I think that kind of boiled down to the very traditional journey towards becoming an architect. I was working in a uh, medium-sized firm which did quite a bit of educational work. So there was a lot of things I was involved in. Like it was a very easy process to understand and and the role was pretty much set out. We had a couple of graduates in the office and we're all kind of following the same path. And I think there was a lot of top-down expectation that, okay, this is the next step that you have to do towards registration. And I think once I had started to get experience in contract administration, I was interested in understanding what registration could bring. And when you're searching for the next hurdle, that was going to be the next hurdle. And it seemed that registration was going to be the last hurdle that you'll ever do, um, uh-huh. which I still think it kind of is. Um, the, the firm that I was in kind of set up that structure that this is what you needed to do to get registered and this is what um, Mm. you can do next and this is what the next step would be and that was very easy and for me it was I guess personal validation I was at a position where I was confident in my work and registration seemed to be the next option and I think once you get started on your contract administration process I think professionally it helps when you're registered. I had time to do it and that's what I did. So, yeah. Mm. But, so I think back to that traditional notion of what registration is, I think there are a lot of journeys that what I've understood 
And what I can appreciate is that there's so many different pathways that you can take. Yeah. So I would say that my education in architecture was very traditional. I did, um, I didn't do a kind of gap year in between. I just went straight into my master's program. Also because I didn't want to waste any time. But throughout my career, or at least in architecture school, you find people kind of dropping in, uh, or they're doing a part time course, and that has really mm. opened me up into what architecture can be. And I think. Looking back, even in a professional career sense, I don't think that a traditional pathway to registration is applicable anymore. Because mm. a number of my friends have left the industry, yeah. or if they're becoming a multidisciplinary artist, that's a valid career. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that's something that's very interesting, and that's something that we should be talking about a lot more. Yeah, um, definitely. Like I think that's a choice you can make. We shouldn't be shaming people that these are decisions that they want to make. I think that's something yeah. that um, maybe in the industry we don't talk about enough. Yeah, of course. So that's why the, you know, our series is titled Is It What You Want? It's basically, we wanted to bring the conversation in and have people to openly talk about you know, having different options and perspective towards different decisions Definitely. and making the decision or taking breaks is all fine. Yeah. Like It's part of the journey. I recently sitting in this talk and someone was using this analogies of, you know, basically instead of a tunnel, you are going through a corridor. Once you close the door behind, there are several doors along the corridors that you can open but you know you kind of walking towards the end where you wanted to go to but there are doors for you to open up and explore and going into another space it might be someone's direction or destination doesn't mean that you have to do the same definitely i completely agree um i think that kind of leads me into like the other half of my face which is floristry mm. so i guess just as a background towards floristry the reason why i fell into it so I always knew that I was interested in flowers. You know, as a young child, I would always follow my grandmother as she takes care of the garden and stuff. And mm. that was just something that I have very fond memories of. I guess how I really fell into it during my university studies okay. because I felt like, oh, I wanted to do something on the weekend. As if we are not rushing for time already, I, I felt like I needed to do more. I needed to prove myself that I had this so-called, uh, like this life outside of architecture. I mean, sure, yeah. it did bring in a little bit of like income, but it was barely like anything that was substantial. Mm -hmm. So what I did was that um, I was actually working in a market florist on one day on a weekend. So that's usually a Saturday morning. And I could validate myself because, you know, markets are open very early from like 6 o'clock and they usually finish by 12. So, yeah. so I applied for a job as a market florist, not even to do um, like fancy bouquets. It was just, you want a bunch of this, I'll wrap it up and I'll, and I'll give it to you. Mm. But um, for me, I just need to get out of like my thinking of my design studio for a while. So I told myself, if I could do that, I still have the rest of the afternoon to do my studio work if I had to. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I was basically an overachiever and I, I am honestly a workaholic. So I was like, I did that. And I think I did that for about three or four years, I think throughout my entire um, university studies. And I think what I was interested at that point was understanding how time affected flowers. And what I mean by that is understanding mm. the seasons. Yeah. As an architecture student, you might sit in a studio for 14 hours a day with no mm. windows. You just focus on your computer and you don't even understand what's happening yeah. outside. But understanding yeah. that Everything is still revolving outside of the studio, seeing the different flowers that come to different seasons and even something very small like that or what's locally available, that really brought me a lot of joy outside of university. Mm. Yeah. And I guess one thing led to another. So when I started my full-time job, I knew I couldn't sustain that because it was physically quite taxing to work on the weekend. But... Um, I started doing, I guess, very simple workshops, you know, just for... Mm -hmm people and I started to get to know people who were interested in flowers and then I yeah. got my first booking for a wedding and then bam that was it and it kind of still go on I did close friends wedding um I think barely a year or two into my so-called professional floristry career and uh it appeared in Hello May magazine and I was like okay I seem to be good at this Maybe I should continue doing this. And if I enjoy uh -huh. it, why not? Yeah. Which I guess yeah. on hindsight goes back to the architecture career. Like I put in a lot of time to yeah, all these things. And yeah. even though I may not be very good at certain mm -hmm. things, I kind of put in the time. 
And I think that was something that was, it kind of proved its worth and proved its use through Mm. years of kind of honing the craft. Yeah. Like, it's just like surprisingly that during university time that we're so focused on the design or like just uni in general that we don't actually talk about the things outside. Like, I won't be able to find out that you're you're walking on the floristry during the time. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing is that, strangely enough, there were a lot of other people I knew at that point that were doing their own things. Oh, really? They they maybe kept to themselves, but, like, I know a girl who was making furniture, but on a very, very small scale. You know, it became something that she was actually interested in. Yeah. And it just goes to prove that architecture is not a very single roadmap. Yes. Like, there's a lot of multiple things. And to be honest, even in a professional sense, A lot of architects don't end up doing architecture. They may go into landscape. They may go into uh, a lot of other things. Like I know, for example, um, there is a ceramicist um, who actually used to be an architect. If you look at her work, her work actually shows a lot of of attention to detail. And you can almost tell that there's an architectural brain (laughs) behind it. Yeah, and it, it it kind of informs that work, and I, and that's what I find very fascinating because unconsciously this this study in architecture goes much beyond buildings. It goes into mm. art. It goes into something that's handmade. Ah, so is uh Charmaine from Bisu Keto Studios. So um, I actually met Charmaine when they were doing a ceramics pop up. So the Melbourne Ceramics Market. She was there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I met her in one of those um finders keepers um right. events at the Royal Exhibition yeah. Building, yeah. and I saw her work, and it was so distinctly different from all the other handmade ceramic stuff that she's made. Mm. And I think we all enjoy beautiful things. Yes. I really enjoy like her ceramics and I started talking to her and after, you know, engaging with her and seeing her a couple of times at different markets, I found out that she's an architect and I was like, that makes complete sense because your work is uh-huh. very distinct and it's um for her at the very least it was very precise. Mm. And that was something that she, she was very adamant on. And I was like, Oh, I see that. And I think that's something that's very interesting as well. Mm. You mentioned that, you know, the architecture brain behind all these beautiful creations. Yeah. How did the architecture background that influenced your decision? So I think it didn't happen very consciously at the beginning. So yeah. Yeah. Um, let's do a very commercial aspect which of Flower Street, mm-hmm. which is weddings. Um, yeah. So I went into it from a very, from an architect's mindset. I tried to understand space, mm-hmm. understand site, understand context before I even put flowers. Because, I mean, let's take a very wow. typical yeah. scenario where, let's say this bride wants to do like very like rustic theme. Uh, and she has hired out a barn because, you know, that's where she wants to hold a wedding and that's your reception venue. The first thing I would think of is, where is light coming from? And what is the space? How many people are going to fill up the space? Where are the tables going to be? How can the flowers not just be put onto the space, but how can it enhance the space and make it to be different from what it actually currently is? Like Because I think mm. what flowers does is that it elevates a space. Yeah. Like it's almost like you're setting a stage for a uh, for a show or like a theater oh. show. Like it only happens in a very short period of time, and it's, yeah. the idea is very ephemeral and it's very transient because it happens in that one snapshot. So how can your flowers kind of elevate that space? And I started thinking about all these things, and it came very naturally to me because if you go back into architecture school, these are things that you work out. What yeah. your site analysis, your sun studies, or even your town planning applications that you do now, how does it <laughs> affect all these kind of things? It, yeah, I mean, yeah. like in an architectural sense, that's very dry. And these are things that you have to do because it's a reality of the situation. But going to like floristry, I think that kind of unconsciously came to that. And what I realized later on in my floristry career was that this didn't happen naturally to a lot of other florists. And that was something that oh, I... Really? Like, 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 they would think about it. They would definitely think about it. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, like, it came to me on a very um, instinctive thing. Like, for example, one of the weddings I did at Stones of the Yarra Valley. So mm. it's a beautiful kind of stripped back chapel space. So that was where the ceremony was going to be in. But one thing that really stood out from the space was the lights or, or the windows that were coming from the side of the room. So mm. um, firstly, it was going to be a morning ceremony. So I knew that the sun was going to rise from the east. So it was coming from the yeah. right window. 
and I understood like it was going to be a winter wedding. So Mm -hmm. the light that was going to come in was not going to be very harsh because the light rises a little bit later in autumn Mm -hmm. and the light that comes in is going to span into the space. So what can you do to recreate um, the idea of a winter's morning where there's frost on the window? Yeah. And the ceremony was going to be at 8 o'clock in the morning, which realistically is very early mm-hmm. um, and very unusual. But understanding how light works in that space helped me to do um, an installation where I knew that I wanted the shadows of certain flowers to be lit up from the right. Yeah. And that kind of informed my creation and concept. And the, the overarching concept for the wedding was frost on a window. And the idea mm-hmm. where light is kind of softly coming into the room but it was yeah. a very different concept. Like that was not based on flowers. That was this is based on a on an idea or a concept that is far beyond yeah. um, the choice of flowers at that point. At the end of the day, it's still a wedding. Um, for me, the thinking starts far beyond that. It is it's almost like a design studio where you try and figure out what works and what is a solution for that space. As anything, you're dealing with real clients. So yeah, yeah. you need to help them understand what you what you mean, because not mm. e- not everyone can understand why like light on a window like for them is not very important. And to be yeah. honest, they probably didn't think about it on the day itself because there are five million other things to think about. But <laughs> yes. for me, it was that vision and what mm. the photographer might see and how that sets a stage um, for an event. Mm. Does it influence something that you collecting all the flowers to make a bouquet? I think so. For me, it's understanding scale. My bouquet works tend to be mm. an asymmetrical and um, understanding negative space. So, I mean, these are going into very um, detailed items of like what floristry is, but even understanding uh, concepts of um, symmetry. So when you look at symmetry in a bouquet, it looks like a pair of eyes. And you don't realize that until it happens in front of you. So um, understanding that, um, like for me personally, I use flowers in groups of three or five, which is an odd number, because that allows your eye to kind of gradually move towards the space. So it's not cohesive. It it becomes something that your eye wants to linger for a longer period of time. Actually, the human eye is more receptive to odd numbers than than even numbers. In in a design point of view, it loves symmetry, but it also gets like like there's almost like a narrative that goes along. It allows your eye to kind of focus on one main thing, but then kind of gradually moving towards the smaller parts and the more detailed intricacies. And also something that I love creating is negative space because it allows your mind to fill up. Like it almost imagines what's happening. Like and, and it helps the main flowers contrast a lot more because there's negative space and it uh, and it brings almost like an added elevated sense of what a bouquet, traditional bouquet might be. And that might work in architecture as well, like using light on a wall. It creates a softer um, atmosphere. I think these are things that I think makes architects different from a designer. Try to understand how light works because it's a very fundamental part of what we do. Yeah, just by your description, I can kind of imagine myself being in the space and looking at that beautiful flowers. Design for me is... It's a little bit hard to talk about because it's very intangible. Yeah. yeah. Um, and architecture actually forms like a very physical part that you can talk to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, well, personally, these days I'm starting to collect plants, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not like you, like since uni days, starting to find interest in flowers and so on. There was one day I bought in one plant, then after like giving some water and then it's starting to flourish and grow and then next minute I'm surrounded by like 10,000 different plants. At home. Yeah, that's the story of my life. I think, which is very interesting because like if you think about it on a very large scale, landscaping is so important to a building. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, adding green green in your space, in, in like a living room, for example, it mm. adds a lack of structure, if that makes sense. Like it can mm. provide structure, but it provides something that is a lot more organic and it literally adds life into the space. And I think that kind of translates, our, at least our understanding that um, that landscape or site landscape is actually a very pivotal part of um, an architectural form. Uh, it is about that conversation with landscape and it is not just a singular building that stays on its own. Um, mm. Even if you take um, the design hub, for example, the reason why it works so well in terms of its facade is because it's sitting on a very busy street. 
and it's yeah. so different from all the other buildings because it's a monolithic kind of structure and your eye wants to focus on it because there's regularity and there is a sense of like almost like a calm or something that your eye can stop and look at or, or even mm. using, it as, using it as a pivot point or understanding that kind of structure. So it's almost understanding um, how landscape informs architecture. And if you tell a client um, that, oh, you know, the reason why we put grass here is to make your walls pop. So you understand like the immenseness of this wall. It's not something that your everyday person can, can understand, but also because it's, I guess at the end of the day, it comes down to money. Mm. And that's the main thing that's driving projects. So it's very interesting. And I think that's something that um, actually needs a lot more conversation. Just when you're talking about it, like I actually write down a word called mental oasis. I don't know why it just comes to my mind with this term. And landscape architecture is something that probably more tangible and more closer to people's life in some ways that people can draw their reference to. Definitely. I think, you know, when you were talking about mental oasis, I think it relates very strongly while we are in, like at this point, we are still in the middle of um, the pandemic. But I think yeah. a lot of people are spending a lot more time at home and I guess they finally understand that the space that they live in, it needs to be more livable. And mm. I think what, like personally, I feel like having plants in the space gives you a responsibility to take care of something. So one of the things that I've actually spoken to with a friend who started gardening a lot is that mm. um, like this is very like emotional and this is very fluffy, but... There's this quote that I came across where gardeners or even farmers, they're the most optimistic people because every single seed or every single plant that they put into the ground, there is hope that they are literally putting into the ground. Like they hope and they have so much optimism for this plant that it will flourish and it will do very well. So it is literally a seed that they're planting for their own positivity. That actually resonates so well with me at this point because... (sighs) At this point uh, um, in the pandemic where we are almost losing control of our basic necessities, not even getting a haircut, like for example, we can't control that. But, you know, we are able to control soil conditions, the amount of light a plant gets. And that kind of creates like a little mental oasis where it's this very controlled environment that you can participate in. And I think, yeah, like when you're talking about mental oasis, I think that instantly like kind of struck me. There was like they're investing in their own mental state. I was recently watching this documentary by David Mm -hmm. Attenborough. Uh, David Attenborough. Alive on the Planet. Yeah. One of the scenario that he documented is that the when people abandon the city, the plants just taken over naturally and flourish and, you know, the animals starting to see hopes to dwelling back on Earth. It's just like that, all that hope. I have personally not watched it, but I know that it's very impactful, which I think kind of leads on to this idea of sustainability. So I think sustainability is definitely like a hot topic. Everyone's talking about it now. And mm. I think it happens both uh, tangibly in flower industry as well as the architecture Mm. industry. I was actually um, having a chat with a friend of mine who is an architect and she wanted to put like plants in uh, in a 3D render. Mm. And she realized there's no Australian native. Like the resource is just not there. As much as she wants to populate it with like native gardens, like visually the option is not there. Like like she can't find any 3D models of like um, a billy button or like a native blackberry or something like it's just not available so i think that's very interesting now that you've mentioned it because um you know if you plant native flowers firstly you don't have to water it that much because the plant is already suited to the environment you don't have to water it that much it's going to flourish and it's going to do a lot better because this is a natural environment if you if you grow a plant that's indigenous to victoria yeah. And you plant it in a Victorian state, you can't tell me that it's not that it's gonna do badly because this is what it was bred for. Yeah. And I think what's also important is that all these native flora, if you if we start putting this into our everyday kind of houses, uh mm-hmm. like you know, like we're talking about external landscape, you're actually supporting all like native wildlife. Mm-hmm. And that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Like for example, if I look out my window now, I've got a gravillia tree just like a native mm. like a shrub and that actually feeds like the native um honey eater birds and i see it because you know now you're working from home you observe a lot more things around you and mm. i was like oh like the native honey eaters actually come by at like 10 o'clock 
like to feed on these flowers when it uh, when it's actually flowering and and that's something that maybe we should start thinking about i know in education projects that i previously worked worked on mm. the landscape architect has increasingly chosen to put yeah. native plants because first of mm. all it's more sustainable there's lesser usage of water yeah and what you're doing is that you're not introducing invasive species into the natural landscape because i mean realistically mm. birds are going to eat fruits they're going to yeah. spread the seeds to elsewhere yeah. And you don't want to introduce an invasive plant mm. somewhere else where you cannot control. Yeah. yeah. I think just by even introducing the native plants, it's also increasing sustainabilities in design industry or the building industry. Definitely. And you're so, and I think most importantly you're supporting local growers as well mm. because you're not importing these plants. They just have to invest their time on a native plant which requires lesser water which has a lesser impact on the strain of water resources in the state. I mean these I mean, realistically, these are very, very small steps that we can take. And, and mm. this is focusing on a very small scale. But I think every small bit makes an effort. Yeah. Um, and it also works as part of the acknowledgement to the land. 100%. I think relating this back into the, I guess, the floral industry, which is actually a very hot topic at this point. So, for mm. example, um, over the past few years, there's been a big trend of using pampas grass which is that long, fluffy grass that is so beautiful and like it looks very architectural and you know uh, it fits that mm. bohemian kind of vibe that everyone was going for the past couple of years. <laughs> yeah. But what it is is that pampas grass is actually a very invasive species. Like it, it literally grows wild like because it's a seed head mm. and if you use it for a wedding, you cannot control when the wind blows. And, ah, okay. and the wind actually will spread the seeds and all these seeds will create all these invasive plants so there's actually been a legislation in i think new south wales and a couple of states where we cannot use pampas grass anymore which is you know a very interesting topic because i guess traditional florists like they can use whatever they want and if it's available at the wholesalers i would just use it i think most interestingly it was where we had yeah. the bushfires in new south yeah. wales and victoria that massively affected a lot of cut flower farms in victoria because victoria grows a lot of uh, local flowers for the rest of, because it's the ideal climate and it ships it to the rest of the state but yeah. because of the bushfires they have there was a severe lack in local flowers that were available and this was um i would say in may so firstly, there was already a shortage of local flowers. And then when coronavirus happened, the import of flowers were just not available. So actually, what happened during Mother's Day this year, which is one of the biggest times for a florist, but locally, there was just nothing available. Like there was hardly anything available that was being grown because there were shortages. Like people couldn't, people couldn't travel across state to deliver flowers. Like that was just a reality of the situation. Oh. And... What I ended up doing for my Mother's Day orders was that I went out to local growers that were still growing stuff and uh-huh. and you support them because what happens is that the money that you invest on these local flowers goes straight into the growers like pocket. Yeah. And that is one way to um the local industry. There has been a lot of conversation, I think especially this year, about sustainability in flowers. Uh. Because did you know that the flowers that you buy at your local supermarket, they may not be locally grown. The reason why they're so cheap is because they're all imported from Kenya, uh, imported from China, or imported from Malaysia. So the carbon footprint is already so high. Uh. There's been a lot of conversation about sustainability in the flower industry, uh. which led to the, um, like, I guess, the creation of um, a governing industry, which is the flower industry of in Australia, which was set up this year to understand the needs of the growers and to provide a lot more information to your everyday kind of florist. So it's a very interesting topic when you kind of talk about sustainability, which kind of matches, because these are things which actually affect Mm. architecture as well. Because when we go back to sustainability of landscape, Mm. um, how much water you're using, when we have a drought, which is, you know, probably going to happen in summer Mm. again, why are you using flowers that need so much Mm. water? And, you know, it's a personal design choice, sure, that's something that you can do, but making small changes to incorporate uh, native plants, especially when you're an architect, you almost have that social responsibility to Mm. respond because you or your landscape architect, you may opt for, okay, this is the proposal of native plants that I would like to introduce to your client. You're making that active decision to include it, regardless of whether your client wants to use Mm. it or not, at least you are making the option available to your client. We talked about a little bit of the architectural brain and the yep. 
in the floristry and the weddings and so on. What's the other way around? Like, how is your experience in floristry and sustainability decisions impact on your architectural design? Making decisions on supporting local producers. So, if you're doing an education project yep. supported by the Department of Education, there's a clause that requires you to use most or a percentage of your your building material has to be from a local hmm. um, supplier. Yep. So, local supplier or local company. I think certain cladding materials can be made in Australia. Hmm. And I think that has made a conscious effort when it comes to specifying materials or even specifying floor tiles. Mm. Like, Because I think at the end of the day, it's all about money. Mm-hmm. The construction cost is definitely important to the final result to your client. Mm. But is there an alternative product? Um, how much more are you actually paying if you choose a local supplier instead of um, an overseas supplier? And how much money are you actually saving? So, uh, And if you are supporting a local economy maybe they are able to expand and that's where you get your economies of scale. That's where you get your buildability. It's making small changes in the short run that will impact the long run. Uh, Definitely, I think sustainability uh, in terms of community as well as the environment, there is an active participation in that, but it is made through a lot of small-scale decisions that will impact the industry in the long run. I just find it really fascinating that just the two faced of you, like the florist and the architecture, they're just like waving into each other. Yeah, which is very interesting because that, if you ask me when I first set up Tweet Twigs, that was not something that I thought mm. about. I just knew that I wanted to play with flowers. I just wanted to be paid to be <laughs> to use flowers. And to be honest, that is still what's happening. Um, mm. For example, I've been doing bouquet deliveries over like, you know, lockdown because people need flowers. And I've tried to make the active decision to choose local flowers because local flowers, first of all, you're supporting the farmers. Mm. Secondly, local flowers um, last longer because they're not spending so much time in delivery and transportation. Yeah, And that's something that is so interesting. And, you know, as a design decision that you can ask yourself, yeah. is that a local alternative native flower that you could possibly use that might last a lot longer? So it comes to event work. And I, I think it comes down to the, to the responsibility as whether you're an architect or a florist, as long as you become that medium to inform your client, because you are technically the expert in your field. Mm. And I think we always forget that, that we are the experts. And... <laughs> You have been trained in architecture school. You have been trained in your career to make informed design decisions. I'm not asking people to like, okay, let's just use all sustainable material for now, but to make small changes along the way. As they say, a butterfly flaps its wings in one country. Whatever the idiom is, you create a tornado in like God knows where and the other side of the world. Making a small change on every individual will make a real impact to our industry. Mm. And I think it starts a lot with yourself. Yeah. So now you have set up your Twig Weeks, and which is pretty mm-hmm. successful so far, and you have finished <laughs> your milestone in architecture. Yep. So is it what you wanted and is it what's expected for you? I think in terms of expectations, I think like I'm a workaholic and I'm never satisfied with where I am. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think personally, I have achieved a couple of milestones, but I'm always looking forward to the next thing. Professionally, in my architecture career, I would like to be working on dream projects because, you know, there are certain fields in architecture that I've not explored yet. I've primarily done a lot of education. Mm. Maybe I could do something else. So um, that's something I'm definitely open to exploration. But in terms of flourishing, I think there is, there's a much clearer picture I can definitely say that like my design style as a florist is very different than what I was five years ago. And I see floristry as a very ongoing study and exploration in form yeah. and how that is informed by architecture. So I see it more as an art form and I have a few opportunities coming up next year which will allow me to explore that. Um, I'm currently working on an exhibition next year, which is very exciting, but um, I'm not sure whether the details can be named yet, but okay. it is combining architectural space with floristry work, mm. which is almost almost like the, the peak of these two things coming yeah. together. <laughs> Sounds um, amazing, yeah. Also, what I want to do is to use both my platforms, mm. architecture and floristry, as um, for um, conversation. For example... 
recently, um, I worked on a project with uh, with a body positivity group mm-hmm. to understand what are like what is body shaming in um, the female perspective. Why should we be fat shaming people? Mm. And understanding that as a platform for my flourishy world, but to also allow all these trajectories to come in to begin a new conversation or uh, to share with uh, with other people because these two worlds may never collide. So maybe I can provide that bridge to begin the conversation. Yeah. Whether or not, you know, I'm, I'm not changing the world. I'm not resolving anything. I'm not curing world poverty. But I, I am starting to get the conversation happening, mm. giving it a platform for um, all these things to happen. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's where I'm looking to go and uh, in terms of my floristry. And I think it's it's a very exciting time. Mm, um, I, can, I can say it's very tiring. <laughs> and you know, to have a full-time job, which I love, mm. and to have um, a passion project, which I love as well. Like, so, um, so my philosophy work um, is, is kind of divided into two kind of arms. Mm. One is editorial work, which um, provides a platform for me to explore it as an art form, as a sculptural form. Mm. And then there's wedding work, which I just love with the bottom of my heart because it's a celebration of people together. And I think being able to be invited to these intimate celebrations, especially now where weddings have become a lot smaller and then to create um, a dream um, scenario for them. So mm-hmm. that's something that I love. So mythology is pretty much evenly divided into two. So my editorial work that's something that I'm hoping to explore and maybe in the future to work with brands that kind of align closely with my with my design principles. You know, that's the goal. And, you know, just to manifest and put it out there, like, yeah. uh, you know, to work with Chanel or to even start that platform going, mm. even for my work to appear in a magazine, for example, or, or to be used as a platform for uh, people's voices. I think that to me is something that kind of encompasses what my editorial work mm. Is looking at this point, um, yeah. It's exciting. And it's a personal equation as well. It's it, it's exciting. This is maybe more applicable to people who have gone through the architecture kind of stream of education. Like you can relate everything to architecture mm. because it is so much more than a built form, but it is more of a spatial understanding and a concept. Yeah. So maybe these were the things they were trying to teach us in architecture school. Like who knows? Sure. Like. Maybe these were life lessons that were like you know unconsciously taught to us yeah, that yeah. <laughs> we only realize it twenty years later. But you know, I'll take it and yeah, mm. like you know, if I were ever to be in that position where to encourage um like a young architect or someone that's fresh out of school, just do whatever you want to do, like create a podcast, <laughs> speak about uncomfortable topics yeah. that people are not speaking about because you're manifesting all these things into the world. You know, it, it doesn't really matter who listens to a podcast. Like, you're putting it out into the world. And if someone yeah. wants to find it, they can find it because the, the information's available there. Yeah. If you feel like doing something mm-hmm. and it doesn't affect, like, it doesn't danger your life, mm. do it. Yeah. So, at the beginning, you kind of have a little letter to the 17, 16-year-old yeah. Graham that is yeah. trying to think if he wanted to do architecture and so on. If you wanted to have the letter right to another time, to yourself, yeah. which would that be, and what would it, what would the letter be? That's very interesting. So I think if I were to tell myself maybe ten years ago, okay. to I guess a much younger person like myself, I would tell like him to you know just stick with it. It is always going to get better. Yeah. The decisions that you have made, yes, they will impact your future, mm. but it does get better. Okay. Because I think uh, when I was a lot younger, there were a lot of queries I've made that, you know, um, that that all these decisions might might prove to be negative or, you know, I, I'm like changing the whole course of my life. Mm-hmm. But it does get better. Like, and, and I think what's really important to know is that, um, or at least for myself to know, is that you are stronger than all of this mm. and you're able to live through it. Um, I can say that architecture school was really challenging for me. Mm. Um, uh, getting registered was very challenging to me as well. And maybe anyone outside of architecture may not understand it, but I think what is imp- 
important is to tell people that like you're strong enough, you're able to go through it, and mm-hmm. uh, and I think to celebrate your achievements, like just because someone has been through it and they have, you know, like yay, you know, like it's done, it, it doesn't mean that it's that it's not worth celebrating. So I think celebrate all the small achievements, mm. celebrate your small successes because I think that makes you grow as a person. Yeah. I mean, this has suddenly become like a life lesson, but. <laughs> Um, no, it's a it's a great. Comment. I think it's kind of applicable to our lives mm. at this point. Um, and yeah, be in a good headspace, be a good person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very it's almost very simple, but also very challenging. But you know that that's what makes makes life interesting. You know. So I think that will be like closing up for men. Do you have anything they want to add in? <laughs> No, I don't think so. I think this is very. This has been a very interesting journey. I think it has been, it has been a process to rediscover myself at the same time. It's in a very weird way, and I yeah. think, um, and I hope that all these conversations will begin to start, like a little trickle of thinking in mm. whoever who hears this, and you know if, and yeah, I I like this is my opinion, and I think. I'm I'm definitely not opposed to hearing other views. Mm. Um and, and actually that's what makes it interesting to to listen to someone's argument or counter argument. So, you know, if mm. if you have any comments about this, like feel free to like reach out because I would love to start a yeah. conversation about this. So how can people find you then? <laughs> oh, that's a great segue. Um, <laughs> so, so uh you can find me on social media, my uh, my Instagram handle is TweetTwig, so T-W-E-E-D-T-W-I-G-S. From your TweetTwigs on Instagram, I think that's where um, I kind of update the most um, mm. regularly. Um, you can find projects that I've worked on on my website, uh, TweetTwigs.com. Um, that's where most of my work. Um, and, you know, keep a lookout on stuff because, you know, I think uh, something very exciting is going to happen. Mm. I I, I can't really talk about it now because I, I don't even know whether it can happen next year. But fingers yeah. crossed, um, maybe an exhibition's coming. Yeah. Maybe. Let me know what the time is and then I will... Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll give the podcast an exclusive access into the exhibition. <laughs> you know? It's a long but, way. You know, yeah. yeah. Okay. Keep positive and... Mm. Yeah. We are... We've lived through six months in lockdown. We can do this. We can do this. Yeah. That's so close now. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks so much, Graham, again, for joining us today on this special series. So if you're interested in Graham's journey, you can find Graham's social media handles, which we will also put it in our notes. Otherwise, if you have other topics that you're interested in for us to explore, please send us a message via the Instagram account at Alchemist in the Making. This episode was recorded and produced by your special host, Gina He. At the meantime, stay safe and we will see you in the next one. Thanks, Yay. guys. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>